Welcome to the Friendship Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Binnick, and today we're gonna be talking about all things fitness, wellness, and mindset so that you can be the best version of yourself for everybody and your family and life that loves you and needs you. All right, guys, what is going on today? We are back in the health section. My voice may or may not be a little shoddy. I'm actually redoing this one today, which is uh, the weekend after the Masters, which always leaves me a little hoarse uh, screaming and enjoying and loving every ounce of effort that everybody puts in that weekend. And uh, so proud of just everybody. If you guys took part in that or if you guys volunteered or spectated, or even honestly, if you guys just come in and put in effort every day with the people who do do the Masters event, uh, you are a part of that. So uh, I love that weekend, you know, to just for a side tangent before we get into our awesome wealth section for today. You know, I think recently, you know, I've been paying more and more attention to sort of people's energy levels in like in, you know, what I would just call like their soul or their spirit. And I actually wrote this in our weekly email last night. You know, I think a lot of people are very uh, defeatist attitude, very low energy, low spirit. You know, they're hitting you with a lot of like just down like, yeah, you know, life's really hard and, you know, my work schedule sucks and, um, you know, I have no time and, and like everyone just keeps hitting you with that. And it's like this plague that just is becoming normalized in our society. And it makes me sick. It's a sick energy for me to be around. I hate it. Uh, I want nothing to do with it in my life. And, you know, it's been sad to watch some of that happen, even within people inside of the friendship community where, you know, we're working actively extremely hard to make sure that there's a lot of podcast information. The coaches are, you know, able to point people in the right directions on how to start working on their mindset and some beginner mentalities. And, you know, we're just, uh, you know, having a tougher time, I think, than I've ever had to break through with that. And I think a lot of that is just sort of what's been born in on our culture, you know, the past 18 months and coming out of that, going back to work, schools going back in and just sort of the challenges that have always presented themselves. There's nothing new with any of the challenges and there's nothing new with any of the objections that people are raising in terms of, you know, why it's hard to work out or eat healthy right now. All that stuff is the same. Where people seem to be worse off now is they're not adapting and they're not even looking to adapt. They're not even looking to take on the challenges that are being presented with them in their lives. And they're just looking for easy way outs. And, you know, honestly, like that whole mentality is poison. And, you know, I I hope if you guys have it with people around your life, I hope that you love them enough to look at them and go, you need to straighten the fuck up. Like that whiny, bitchy stuff, I don't want it anywhere around me. I don't want it anywhere around my kids. I don't want it anywhere around my family. You need to figure it out. You need to adapt, be an adult, and fix it. And that's what I, you know, people, sometimes when I go hard on people, people like make a mocking joke of me and be like, boy, I thought this place was friendship. And it's like, if you, if you want to set me off a little bit, watch my eyebrows raise. It's like, see, the problem is, is these people think that their friends are the people who dance around the niceties of, you know, lying to them. If you're sick and you're metabolically sick and you're obese and you have some issues in your life from a health perspective and everyone just keeps dancing around telling you it's okay, it's okay, life is hard, you do whatever you want. Nobody ever looks at you and go, you need to start fixing this. 
There will be a point, I promise you, where your sons or your daughters or somebody, you know, ages and gets to the point where they're 18, 19, 20, 21, and they are going to look at you and they are going to want you to be there for their wedding. They're going to want you to be there for their life and for your grandkids' life or their children's life. And you need to be healthy to be able to do that. And if you take a bunch of time off when they're seven, eight, nine, ten, you use them as an excuse because of it. They're not going to accept that. They're not going to be like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm sure it was really hard. But like, that's totally an excuse for you to be sick and not be around or not be active to go on vacations with us or help us with the kids or whatever, whatever we're looking forward to doing. And I think a true friend, true love is somebody who is willing to risk the friendship or risk the relationship in order to help you. Somebody who doesn't care about you. If I think about the people I don't care about in my life, those are the people where I'm not even going to go out of my way to say anything because it's just not worth it. Like if I'm just not going to bother, then that obviously means I just don't care about the person. But if I'm willing to, you know, quote unquote, go hard on somebody, if I'm willing to dig in a little bit and look at you and tell you, you need to buck up, like you need to adapt, you need to fix it and not let you go through all the bullshit excuses and routines like that shows that I care about you because the easy thing for me to do is be like, yeah, it's okay. And then just walk away, move on or just to neglect ever bringing it up or ever talking about it. And I hope that, you know, at some point you guys, you know, acknowledge or at least realize the fact that like this podcast for me is sort of just a labor of love. Like it's, I just want to provide a medium to try to help people as much as I possibly can but people need to be, you know, they want, they need to want to be helped. They have to meet you halfway. And it's staggering to me how many people won't even listen to a podcast or won't even pick up a book. They won't read Obstacle is the Way. It's like if you read that book and you are not motivated to turn around and stop making excuses, then I can't help you. Nobody can help you. And so the first thing that you need to do in your life is work on your own mindset. And so if you guys have people in your lives that you guys are feeling this way and you know that they need some redirection, maybe it's time for a little tough love for them. You know, try to get them set up, try to have those sharp communication patterns and quit dancing around it. So with that stuff being said, uh, I love the Masters Weekend because it's sort of the antithesis of all of that. It is not a lot of excuses, just pure, unadulterated grunt, hard work and watching people, you know, some people would say suffer, uh, I would say succeed. And, you know, you really get to watch them realize what their body is actually capable of. And I love it because it's so challenging in the moment for everybody, every single person, no matter how fit you are, no matter how capable you are, they all have the same struggle. And if you watched everybody at the very end of the competition, you know, laying down and talking about how hard it is and letting themselves recover. And then 30 minutes later, you know, they've got no two, they're laughing, they're joking, they're back at it. And, you know, you check in the next day, how's the body feel? They're like, actually, you know, I feel pretty good. And that's just so indicative of the fact that like we really can push ourselves so much further than we actually think we can. And at the end of the day, you know, pain is very temporary and, you know, glory, as they say, lasts forever. So uh, let's move in today to our timeless investing principles. So we are now somebody, if we're following along here and we're following the step processes, we are out of debt. 
we have sort of corrected our job situation to allow us to, you know, have a work-life balance that works for us and be in a good, you know, income situation. We understand assets and liabilities and compounding interest. And of course, we live below our means. So now we get to start diving into what I consider to be the fun stuff, which is some timeless investing principles and what assets do we purchase? And this is a great question. It's actually a really interesting time in sort of American and human history to start talking about what assets do we purchase? Um, you know, there's a million different people who make lots and lots and lots and lots of money doing this exact thing. Just talking about that you should buy this asset and not that asset. You should buy this stock and not that stock. You should buy this company and not that company. You should buy this building and not that building. And that's all they do is they just try to pick the winners and steer you away from the losers. And we're going to talk a little bit more simplistically because I think that most uh, statistical data will show you that there's only a small, small handful of people who actually over time can consistently pick winners uh, and can consistently pick losers and have a you know long range track record. And those are people who do it full time. And more than likely, they're probably significantly smarter than you or me. And they've probably forgotten more about financial investing, doing it, you know, 20 hours a day or 18 hours a day, every single day for 40 years uh, than you and I could ever hope to invest in it. So we're going to try to talk a little bit more about what we can use. And so, you know, the first one is we're going to talk about dollar cost averaging. And so today is really going to be basics. And so I'm assuming now at this point where we're at in the ladder is, you know, we've started to have a couple of weeks and a couple of months of living below our means and our savings account are getting up, you know, north of, let's say, three to four months of expenditures. So let's say on average, I spend $2,500 on, you know, rent and food and utilities and cell phone bill and those things. So let's say I spend $2,500 just for round even numbers. And let's say my my income is $4,000 a month. Well, I've got $1,500 to play with. And so saving that up then over, let's say a six month period is going to get you $9,000, which is somewhere around four to five months of, uh, of safety net. And so once you start getting into that pattern, you need to start looking at investing your money. So if you have a savings account or if you have something that's a very, very low interest, very safe, secure, basically a cash account, and you're keeping any more than four to five months of an emergency fund in that, uh, you're losing money, you're leaving money on the table. So you need to start looking at what assets can I start to save for? What assets can I start to purchase? And so the easiest way to set this up is to start looking at how we can dollar cost average into different accounts or different funds. So obviously the first funds that we want to do is our tax advantaged funds. So this would be your IRA, your 401k, uh, your, you know, college education fund for your kids, your HSA for your health savings account. And, uh, I'm sure that there are others, but those are going to be the main couple. And honestly, you're going to be able to put quite a bit of money into, uh, those tax free before you would even be able to maybe look at just a normal brokerage account. And so as we start looking at dollar cost averaging, first, what is it? And so what it is, is I like to just think about it even more simplistically than probably the real uh, definition is, but it is on a set timeline. And I also like to think about it as it's something that's automatic. I am going to take a set amount of dollars and put it into this account, and it's going to get invested into a bucket of stocks, ETFs, mutual funds, whatever it is, automatically, where 
I'm indiscriminate of the price swings of the stock market. It does not matter to me. And I'm just putting, putting the exact same amount every week or every month into this account. And over time, it will grow. So what's nice about this is, like I said, you don't have to be a stock picker and you don't have to worry about timing the market. If the market takes a shit and goes down you know, 30% in a matter of a month or so, you are just buying more of the stocks or the ETFs. You're buying more shares when the prices are lower. And so let's say you know, I'm, I'm putting into a stock that's you know, trading at $50 a share and my dollar cost averaging is $100 a month. Well, at $50 a share, I'm buying two shares every month of that company. Well, if the price gets cut in half and goes down to $25 a share, I'm now buying four shares a month of that company. So now if the price goes back up to 50, my four shares are going to be worth $200. Whereas those first two shares that I had bought when the share price was $50 are still worth the exact same amount. They're still worth the $100 that I had initially put in. And so when price swings go low, honestly, if you're safe and you're secure and you keep your job and you've got your emergency fund and you're not hurting for any money, if the stock market goes down 30%, you actually can be happy. You actually can be kind of excited, which is a very weird mentality for a lot of people because there are a lot of people who are trying to trade in and out and they're trying to pick the winners and the losers. They're trying to time the market. And when the market takes a shit like that, well, they start to freak out. And this is where you see like headlines coming and panic and all this crazy stuff. It's because the people didn't have their ducks in a row and they were using the stock market basically as gambling. And so we have to be able to outlast all of those swings, but dollar cost averaging is a great strategy to do that. Now we wanna make sure that whenever we're putting into something uh, like an IRA or a 503B, I think is the, the student uh, college fund, when we're putting into those things, we have to realize that we can't necessarily just pull that stuff out willy nilly. So we do have to start thinking about making sure that that's not going to be money that we need anytime soon. So you can also dollar cost average into savings accounts. And so this is how we set Maria up is, you know, we know she's going to need a new car sometime in the next probably year or so. And so a couple years ago, we set up a online savings account. And we just named the savings account car. And so then she dollar cost averages $150 every month into her car account. And so that money is easily accessible. It's in a cash account. There will be no swings. It's not buying stocks and it's just there whenever she needs it. So if her car dies tomorrow, she's saved up enough money where she could literally just empty that account and have a new car the next day. And we've sort of saved and planned for that. And you can do that for any big purchases that you're going to be doing. If you guys are, you know, dating a girl and or a guy and you're like really interested in, you know, them and you think maybe down the road, okay, well, you know, I might think about marrying this girl. Well, it might, and you might think, okay, I want to, I want to get a nice ring. And, you know, if, if you're tighter on cash, that's going to be something that's maybe a little bit lower in cost. You might look at something in the two to $3,000 range. Don't go into the 10 or $15,000 range unless you're like made of money and, you know, keep it tight, but just start thinking about, okay, work backwards. Let's say I want to propose, you know, at my family's house next Thanksgiving. So that's, you know, uh, 14 months away. And I want to buy a ring for 1500 bucks. I need to put about $110 into the savings account every month. And so that's a way that you can kind of start planning dollar cost averaging to save for specific things that you know you're going to need to purchase coming soon. 
So when we start thinking about that, we set these dollar cost averaging things up and I have about, I would say probably 10 of these that go out right after all of my, you know, my paycheck and some of my other investments and all that stuff settles every month, which for me is about on the fifth of the month. All of my dollar cost averaging accounts just kick and they just pull the money right out of my account. And all of my investments are done on that fifth of the month. And then whatever's left in my checking account is like, okay, well, this is what you've got to spend on the rest of your month. And so if I want to buy, you know, some new nanos or new shoes or new t-shirts, if I got enough money for that, I can. If I want to just save it and have a little bit more of a safety net or a cushion, I can. But what's nice is it's all automatic. I don't have to think about it. I don't have to check a bunch of accounts. I don't have to go through and click a bunch of buttons. I don't have to think about what stocks I'm going to buy or anything like that. A lot of that stuff's already been decided and the money just goes into the account for me. So uh, I like to use M1 Finance. A lot of people ask me for that. Um, M1 Finance is a platform specially designed for long-term holding and for dollar cost averaging. And so it's a really cool platform. It's very unique. And that one's very simple. A lot of people try to use Robinhood. I don't like Robinhood because it's a little bit too... Uh, easy to be in and out. And so you're, it's more of a trading application, in my opinion. It's not really designed for people to do uh, long-term holding. And I say that mainly because they're playing on people's dopamine from the trading perspective. So you get a lot of push notifications to your phone. Uh, it's very easy. I mean, I can pick up my phone. I think I could probably buy a stock in within three minutes or probably within three clicks when I unlock my phone on Robinhood. And that's just a little bit too convenient for me. I really don't like that. And it's, against really sort of those timeless principles that we were talking about. So we start thinking about that. We set up our dollar cost averaging strategy. What we want to start thinking about is how long do we hold these stocks for? and Or how long do we hold this bucket of ETFs, whatever buy? And we're going to talk about what we buy here in a second. And the main goal here, guys, is that when you put something into an investment, you want to have zero plans of having to sell it. And so if you're going to need the money, so let's say it's something like uh, like an engagement or a wedding or a big vacation or a car and you're saving for that, well, that is a known purchase that you're going to need at a set date and time. What I would tell you is I would not be dollar cost averaging those into stocks or into investments or into assets that have some sort of a swing in pricing capacity. I would put that into something more fixed, right? So I'd put that into something like a savings account or maybe at the very most some sort of like a short-term bond which isn't going to maybe a little bit more yield on it. So a little bit more interest, but it's usually pretty negligible and uh, isn't going to make a huge difference one way or the other. So as we start looking at that, when we put those dollar cost averaging things into it, we need to hold it for at least a cycle. And so a lot of people are going to ask, well, what's a cycle? Well, there's a lot of different cycles. There's real estate cycles, which a lot of you are familiar with right now. And everything has this cycle of, uh, you know, kind of craziness going up and then uh, drop in the market and sort of a correction and then a leveling out period and a period where things are pretty flat. And then there's high demand again and so on, so on, so on. So everything is cyclical. And when things are feverish and really aggressive and you're hearing stuff just to use the housing market, so you guys have probably heard this before when you're hearing like, oh my gosh, I got offered 40,000 over asking and I got 10 offers in two days. It's like, okay, well, that's coming up on the high end or the peak of a cycle. And it's really been that way for a couple of years now in the real estate market. And so uh, I think most people would tell you we're probably due for a little bit of a pullback, uh, but there's also a lot of macroeconomic factors coming in that are making that harder for people to see when it's going to happen. But at the bottom line, what we're thinking about is at least 10 to 12 years is what I like to think about. 
And so the money that you are putting into these dollar cost averaging schemes, you need to imagine you're just like, you're kissing it goodbye. You have to imagine that's just not real. That's just not there anymore. And it's just going into these accounts. And Maria's is, she's my favorite with this because we set all this up years ago now. And I, I don't even know if she knows the password to her account. She just never checks it. It dollar cost averages in every month. And like the one time every two or three years she checks it, like her eyes get all big. She's like, holy crap, like that's really turned into something. It's like, yeah, it has. That's exactly why we do this. It's always very exciting to see, uh, you know, how excited she gets in how powerful the dollar cost averaging and then just letting it go and leaving it alone uh, can be. And so when we start doing these and we start talking about stocks next, we want to make sure that we allow the stocks to have time to grow and to really compound. And a one or a two or a three year timeline typically is just not enough. And even if a stock is compounding in a one or a two or three year timeline, a lot of times it's going to have a pretty sharp pullback. And so you're going to have more volatility, bigger swings in the price of that. So let's start breaking into stocks a little bit. We're going to do just a little basic stock education here. And so a lot of you guys are going to be significantly more advanced on this. Some of you guys are going to be newer to this. So bear with me. If you guys are very advanced, you guys can obviously probably just skip the episode if you want. If you guys want to listen, you're more than welcome to. So a couple basic things for stocks. There's a couple different types of stocks. Typically, you're going to have growth and you're going to have value stocks. And so a basic overview of those, what I like to think about is growth stocks are reinvesting their profits back into the company in order to compound their own growth. So they are not giving cash flow out to their shareholders. They're not pulling money out of the business and then repaying a shareholder in the form of a dividend. And so what that looks like a lot is Amazon is probably going to be your best bet of this. And so a lot of people talk about, well, Amazon didn't pay taxes and blah, 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 blah. Well, what Amazon did with their profits, which you pay taxes only on profits, what Amazon did with their profits was they reinvested that. They reinvested into new buildings, into workforce, into payroll, into research and development. And so they don't always show gigantic profits because they're reinvesting that into infrastructure and into growth because they believe the best investment is themselves. They believe reinvesting in the business is the best way for them to grow. And then shareholders are rewarded with a higher value of the enterprise. So as they reinvest in those, as they buy more buildings and more prime real estate and they you know, hire the most valuable people in the country to work for them, well, their company becomes worth more right? Because they own more assets. And as they own more assets and their company is valued more, their stock price goes up. And so a shareholder in a growth company is rewarded by a growing or a compounding or a larger stock price increase. But for that, they're not always paid monthly or quarterly in terms of a dividend. So that is a growth stock. And most technology companies are growth stocks. On the other end of that, you have value stocks. Value stocks are typically going to be something that's maybe a little bit more of an established company, something that has very consistent revenues and very consistent profits. And they're not looking to grow at these exponential levels. They're looking to optimize. And so they're looking to make sure that they're as profitable as they can be. They're trying to cut costs. They're trying to increase revenue a little bit, but they're trying to only do it where it increases profit. So good value companies are like Johnson & Johnson, Coca-Cola. Uh, these are companies that are very effective in terms of paying out a good consistent dividend. That dividend typically grows very well and the company grows, but small. 
And so it's a little bit more calculated. And their goal with these companies is to have a lower appreciation in the enterprise value of the company. So they're not making massive purchases. They're not going out and really looking to like hire 100,000 people next year. They're looking to hire maybe a thousand people the next year and fire a thousand people and have a net benefit to the company. So you're looking to improve. And so then the profitability of these companies are really, really good and they pay out that in cash to the shareholders. So if you own a share of stock in Johnson Johnson, I haven't checked in a little while, but let's say they pay you a 3% dividend and typically that's going to be something quarterly. And so you would divide 3% by four because they do it quarterly. And then they would pay you however much the value of your stock is worth times that amount. And so that's a basic overview of these. Okay. Value companies are typically going to be a little bit more stable. They're going to have less price swings and growth companies are going to be a little bit more vulnerable to things like interest rate spikes and uh, macroeconomic things that, you know, are going to impact them. So, you know, a good example is, you know, let's say Congress comes out and, you know, they put a law in place on social networking companies. So like Facebook and they say, okay, these are now, you know, utilities and they start to restrict them a little bit. Well, Facebook is going to have a massive swing in price based off of these uh, factors. But if you're looking at a more established company like Coca-Cola, where, you know, they've got all of these different revenue streams. It's not, they're not just selling Coke. You know, they own hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of brands from, you know, vitamin waters and sparkling waters to caffeine drinks to all these, all these things. And so if there was a ban on, let's say, you know, sugary drinks like they did, I think in New York City for a little while, well, you're going to see an increase in something like maybe bubbly waters. And so while their Coke sales might go down, their bubbly water sales are going go up and so they sort of net out to this like even steven mentality so typically a lot of times they're going to be much more well-rounded much more safe much more secure companies so depending on the type of investor you are and depending on how old you are you may lean one way or the other typically if you are older you want a little bit more stability you don't want to handle you know 50 percent drops in your in your net worth in your retirement value when you're two years away from retirement so you might start shifting to a little bit more established stocks you might start shifting a little bit more to the value and you might like that cash flow in terms of being able to pay for some of your needs when you're retired uh, and you might steer clear or at least have a little bit less of your net worth in your growth stocks. Next up is market cap. And so there's a couple different things. There's mega cap companies, there's large cap companies, there's mid cap and small cap and micro cap companies. So if you hear that, basically what it means is how much is the enterprise value of the company worth? So if you were to add up basically all of their outstanding shares of stock times the stock price, that gets you the market cap. And that generally is a good metric to tell you how much the company is quote unquote worth. And so if you look at uh, some of the bigger companies, you're looking at Apple, it's market market cap is $2 trillion with a T, which is nutty. Um, and so they are, they, I believe they were the first trillion dollar company. And, you know, now they've moved quickly onto 2 trillion, which is again, mind blowing. Cause I remember it like it was yesterday when they passed 1 trillion, that was a big deal. And that second trillion really wasn't that hard for them. So uh, so they are the biggest company in, uh, in the stock market in America. And so, uh, they are a good kind of metric to see the mega cap 
And then on your micro cap, you know, you can go all the way down into companies that are worth maybe only $100 million. And so when you're looking at some of those those smaller companies, I know I say only $100 million, but if you compare $100 million to $2 trillion, uh, if you're just to like look at uh, a couple metrics for that, it would be able to show you how unbelievably drastic the pricing difference of the two are. It's actually unfathomable for most human beings to even understand what a trillion dollars is. Um but basically, these are market caps. And so a lot of times you're going to see different strategies in terms of market caps. What you generally see is that companies that have a much, much larger market cap, they are going to probably be growing less. So you're not going to compound your money at quite the same rate typically as you could in a smaller or a micro cap or a mid cap company uh, that's growing more exponentially. And so a good way to look at this is if you are, you know, Apple, what is the possibility of your money if you put $100 in Apple for your money to double. Well, they would have to go from a $2 trillion company to a $4 trillion company for your money to double. And that's pretty hard. Like they're not going to add $2 trillion worth of value at this point in their company's career. They're a pretty established company. Something major would really have to happen for them to double. As opposed to if you were to look at a smaller cap company, and let's say, you know, it's a, let's say it's an electric vehicle company and they just started and they're going to niche down. They're going to do electric vehicle trucks and like that's going to be their thing. And they just started in their pre-revenue and then they announce this truck and the truck is awesome. It starts getting rave reviews. It starts crushing it. And, you know, you bought in when they were a $50 million company and they start selling all these trucks. And now all of a sudden they're a $500 million company. Well, they just 10X'd. And so if you put $100 in, that now is worth $1,000. So you just 10 x your money. And so a lot of times these smaller microcap companies have a much greater chance of us really compounding or turning our money into a lot more, but you also have a much greater risk of them going to zero. Like if you were to just ask somebody the question, what do you think the chances are that Apple's not going to be here next year? It's It's not zero, but I mean, it's as close to zero as you could possibly be for a company to go to true zero. And so that's not likely. But if you were to say, hey, what's the chances of this, you know, random electric vehicle truck company to put their first truck out and it catches on fire and, you know, the family who was in it dies a horrible death and it gets on the news and they go to zero. It's like, well, that's a that's almost a likely possibility like that. That could certainly happen. And so maybe the chances are like 15 percent. So you have a 15 percent chance of losing all your money versus a zero percent chance of losing all your money. But on the backside that you get rewarded with extra reward. So this is where risk reward relationship comes in. We were picking stocks. But that's a basic overview of market caps and kind of why they're important. So we already talked a little bit about holding for at least a cycle, preferably longer, right? Obviously, if we're looking at some mega cap companies and we're looking at some of these larger growth companies, those are the companies that we really want to make sure that we're holding on to and paying attention to if we are going to buy individual companies. And then if you're looking more at the micro cap companies, those might be something where you're maybe in and out of them a little bit less because their cycles are typically going to be shorter. So you're going to see these large swings. So you might want to take profits a little bit more quickly. And that's where rebalancing comes in. And so rebalancing, a lot of people are going to tell you, you know, you can do this quarterly, you can do it monthly. There's a lot of good statistics on this. But basically what you want to do is if you start to see your portfolio getting outsized a little bit, uh, the nice part about M1, I love it. They just have a rebalance button. And so you just hit rebalance and you can do it on a schedule or you can just do it manually. And that's going to kind of rebalance your entire portfolio based on the percentages that you set beforehand. 
And so where that might come important is let's say you put 1% of your stock portfolio allocation in this, you know, electric vehicle trucking company and you think it might go crazy and it does. Let's say it goes crazy and it 10Xs or it 20Xs. Well, now that 1%, what you want to be 1% of your portfolio is actually going to be maybe more like 5 or 10% of your portfolio. And now you're going to start maybe seeing there's a dip in the Amazon price at the same time. And so now maybe Amazon that you wanted to be 10% of your portfolio is now maybe 7% of your portfolio. So now this electric vehicle company is worth more in your portfolio than your Amazon prices. And so you would click rebalance. It would sell the electric vehicle stock back down to a 1% allocation. So you would take your profits and then it would put those profits into Amazon at a lower price point and get you a little bit more safety security and kind of reallocate that. So that's where rebalancing comes in a little bit. It is a good strategy. Almost every portfolio management stuff is going to show you that you should rebalance on some sort of a schedule. Uh, There's not a lot of statistical data on what schedule is best, whether it's quarterly or monthly or annually. Uh, But just the fact that we do need to rebalance at certain points. I do quarterly. Uh, That works for me. I just set a Google Calendar alert and just put Hit, hit rebalance. I log on. It takes me two minutes. I hit rebalance. It rebalances everything. I don't look at anything. I just do it. And that way I don't overthink it too much. And so now we're to our last part, which is uh, stock, you know, how we set up our portfolios a little bit for a basic stock portfolio. And so I've taken a lot of different courses and classes on this. Uh, this is something that I've actually studied a lot. And I've gone sort of full circle on, I think probably most people tell you that they've gone full circle on this. Even Warren Buffett has gone full circle on this because he is somebody who is a stock picker, but he would tell you now just index unless you're going to be able to put in the amount of work and time that he does. And so the the three main uh, ideas here is first, we have to separate, are we going to do it ourselves or are we going to trust somebody else? And so if you're going to trust somebody else, uh, there's a couple different services on the cheap. There's things uh, like Wealthfront and uh, I forget the other. There's a couple other large things that sort of do robo investing and they do wealth management online. And so they're sort of your financial advisors, but they're doing it you know, behind a computer screen. They're doing it with algorithms. They do some tax loss harvesting. They can look at other things in your portfolio and they do online wealth management. So that's somebody else managing things for you. You can also go and get, uh, you know, a wealth management or a financial management company. Typically, that's not going to matter a ton unless you're a very high net worth individual. And then there's the do I do it myself? And so the do it yourselfer, I think now more and more, they're really showing you that a lot of uh, professionals aren't necessarily going to outperform a lot, especially a very simple indexing dollar cost averaging strategy. A lot of times you're going to be right up with some of the best uh, wealth managers and, and market pickers out there. So when we start looking at ourselves, how do we do it ourselves? And so you have two main strategies. The first is if you want to pick stocks, if you want to pick companies, you would pick a basket of about 20 stocks, 20 companies that you like, and you would put roughly a 5% allocation for each. And that's a really good, it's a tried and true way. It's a good way for you to pick the companies that you believe in and try to pick some winners and use any specific knowledge that you have of industry. So maybe you're a computer guy and you know a lot about computers. So my best one with this was back a long time ago. My first stock I ever bought uh, was Activision Blizzard. My second stock I ever bought was NVIDIA. And that was because I was into computer gaming. Yes, Jeff in a previous life was a professional computer gamer for a little bit. And I knew a lot about that industry 
industry. And so I was able to buy into those companies very early because I was using their products. And I saw a lot of people using their products, loving their products, very loyal customers in those uh, industries. And those stocks have done very, very well for me over time. So that was a little bit of a specific knowledge that I had in being ingrained in that community that, you know, some guy on Wall Street is not ever going to get by reading a report because he's not active in the community. The same is true with health and fitness stuff for me now. Uh, there's not as many good opportunities in terms of health and fitness stocks out there, uh, but there are certain trends and things that I would look for in terms of a company that I would invest in in the health and fitness space. So those are using specific knowledge things to make a purchasing decision. And so I might pick companies in that case. I just told you two that, uh, two that I own. And those are, you know, two of my 20 companies. So I have sort of two portfolios that I like to use. So one is a 20 company portfolio, 5% allocation across each. I pick companies I like. I enjoy doing that. It's very fun for me. Uh, it's sort of like a game and I don't put a lot of my net worth in that. That's more just like, uh, hey, this is Jeff Plain, right? Then my other portfolio is much more of a standard indexing. And so we're using the S&P 500 for that. Some people use QQQ, which is uh, you know a basket of mostly technology and growth company stocks and tends to typically out earn or appreciate, but also in pullbacks tends to swing down quite a bit more. And this is basically an, an ETF or indexing is basically you're taking a basket of companies and you're buying the basket. And so for the S&P 500, you're buying a basket of 500 companies and the companies that you buy, the basket that you buy is actually weighted by the biggest companies have the most value in there and the most shares and the smallest companies have the least. And so uh, the mo if when you buy an S&P, let's say you buy one share of VOO or the S&P 500 ETF, and when you buy that, you're buying mostly Apple, Amazon, you know, Facebook, Netflix, Google. And so you're, those are your biggest companies. You're buying some Tesla. You're buying some of these other companies that are in the S&P 500. And you're buying mostly those companies because it's market weighted. And you're buying very little of like the 499th and 500th company. Now, what's nice about this, why it's so appealing, why it does so well is it picks the winners and losers for you. And so a good example for this is recently Tesla was uh, added to the S&P 500 and it booted out a company called Apartment Investment and Management, AIV, from the index. And so there's criteria, there's things that are going on, but basically what's happening is a company that is maybe decreasing in its performance or it's struggling or something's happening is getting replaced by a company that is increasing its performance. And this happens a few times every year. And so there's a couple losers who are kicked out and there's a couple winners who are added in. And if you own the basket, then that is rebalanced for you. And so what's really nice is everything we just talked about with rebalancing your portfolio and having to do that on a set schedule and all those things. Well, when you just buy the S&P 500 index, that's all just kind of done for you. And so you don't have to do a lot of work. So it's very, very, very hands off. There's other indexes. Indexes can index anything. So it can index just technology stocks or just 
uh, healthcare stocks or just dividend paying stocks or dividend aristocrat stocks, which are, you know, really valuable, long lasting, consistent dividend payers. So very established companies. And you can set up your allocation however you like in terms of kind of what goes into what. But this is where you can figure out how to set up a basket. So in M1, it's really nice. You just set up a basket so you could set up. I want 70% in the S&P 500, 20% in the QQQ, and uh, maybe 10% in a basket of bonds or dividend aristocrat paying stocks. And as soon as I put $100 in there, it goes 70 goes to the S&P 500, 20 goes to QQQ, and 10 goes to uh, your dividend aristocrat fund. And it just automatically kicks into those. You don't have to pay attention to it at all. And then every month it just keeps doing that, keeps doing that, keeps doing that. Over time it grows. So I think you can do either. Uh, what I can tell you is the indexing has done much better for me typically. Um, there's you know winners and losers in my companies. And some of the companies have done so well and some of the companies have not done well. And so then you sort of have to make a decision. Do I kick out the losers or do I try to just buy more shares while the prices are you know depreciating because I believe in the company? And so just right there, you think, I have to use my brain. And so for a lot of us, that would just be, I'm out. I don't want to have to use my brain as much as I possibly can. And that's where we can start to get into some beginner stuff here. So I hope that gives you guys a basic overview. For a lot of you guys, this is probably mostly all known. There are a couple really good financial courses on Udemy, which is U-D-E-M-Y. And I'll link those in the show notes that I've taken that I thought were very valuable in terms of teaching me a little bit more on all of this and helped me set up my own strategy. It comes, they come with a lot of spreadsheets. They come with the ability to basically, it teaches you how to set up your initial portfolios. And I did this probably uh, about six years ago. I was sort of slapping things together. You know, I think I started my first stock account. It was an Ameritrade account when I was like 17 or 16, maybe. And that was where I had bought some of the Activision Blizzard stuff and, uh, and NVIDIA and some of those things back in the day. And I had that account forever, forever, forever. I moved it over to M1 Finance not too long ago. And, you know, the big reason was, was I wanted things that were a little bit more automatic. I didn't want a trading platform. I didn't want to be in and out. I wanted something that could just kind of do the work for me behind the scenes. And that would be something that I would really recommend for you guys, especially if you're newer starting off is just have that strategy going just all the time, just every month. It's totally brainless. You don't think about it and it's automatic. And as we move forward into next week and as we start looking at what we're going to be doing uh, in the following weeks, stocks are going to be sort of our base level. We want to establish a good strategy. This is something that we want because they're highly liquid, which means we can buy and sell them easily in case of an emergency. As we start looking into what assets we're going to be maybe purchasing for or saving for that are a little bit bigger purchases or what we do with a little bit larger bulks of money. So let's say, you know, you're to get an inheritance or something or, you know, get a big bonus at work and things like that. Uh, start looking at maybe some other strategies to start rounding out our portfolio a little bit more and start looking into maybe some more exciting asset purchases. Sometimes stocks are exciting, but not always. And so we'll start looking at how we can buy companies, how we can buy real estate differences between commercial real estate and residential real estate, multifamily real estate, special use real estate, and some of those other things. And so looking at maybe uh, some different things to round out a good base of a stock portfolio that we've established. And then we'll go into moving out on the risk curve a little bit and how we can maybe look at uh, hedging and uh, getting into some nitty gritty crazy stuff. And that's where we'll start getting into some of our you know cryptocurrency discussion and some of our uh, crazier assets that are 
maybe too front and center for people because they haven't taken the time to build a good base of stocks and real estate and some of these more tried and true long-term methods and only go after some of those things when they're in a really firm ground situation. So that's how we'll kind of round out our wealth stuff. Thank you guys so much. Uh, you know, the big thing that I love to talk about this guys is this all requires a lot of discipline and discipline equals freedom. And that's something I truly believe. And you will not be able to be financially free unless you have the discipline to start doing some of these things. And so I hope that this is at least the beginnings of a conversation for you to get educated a little bit more or start to take these uh, things into account. If you guys are already doing this, that's awesome. I hope you guys have seen the benefits of it. And I hope that you are <laughs> staying disciplined with your dollar cost averaging, your rebalancing and being smart with your portfolio. Thanks guys.